0: Exodus chapter 35. And uh, this uh, next week, just a, a reminder, I mean, we are getting to it. Uh, May, I don't know about you guys and your family, May is the new December. Um, goodness gracious. When I was coming through school at the end of the year, they said, Bye, y'all have a good time. Now you graduate from every grade, and you have a graduation from every grade. And, and, and award shows and banquets and all this other kind of stuff. And so now you have all that. So May is just as busy as December and there's no Christmas at the end of it. You know what I'm saying? It's just whatever, but May has been a busy time and we're coming up here to the, toward the end of it. So next Wednesday night is May 31st. That will be our last Wednesday night together for a few months um, so we will we will take the summer, which doesn't mean um, nothing's going on. There's a ton of things going on. In fact, the next week will be VBS here at our church, so the, uh, that first week in June. And then uh, we have so many other things, and that's why you have this in your chair. So this was not saving a seat. This is for you guys to make sure. Things will shift on June 28th, so just really a couple weeks we shift from our evening time together on Wednesday nights to a Wednesday morning time together on June 28th. Bacon, praise the Lord. Biscuits and the Bible. Y'all know how that works. And you see that this year we'll be going through the book of Philippians in six weeks together starting June 28th going until up into August and then our Wednesday nights will start back again. So, so be mindful of that, and you see here uh, just a quick little deal, and that has the information for it. So this is for you guys to make sure you have it on your calendar: bacon biscuits and the Bible. And uh, I named it. I named it, and the purpose of naming it bacon biscuits in the Bible was I was. They said first biscuits in the Bible, but by naming it bacon biscuits in the Bible. It, it almost demands the requirement that bacon is served. You know what I'm saying? So if there's any like idea that we're not going to serve it, it's in the title. And so that's how that works. Um, it's just a pastoral thing I learned, uh, through many years. Exodus chapter 35, we are coming through the wake, kind of getting through that wake of that was left by the idolatry of the people, having created the golden calf, bowed down and worshipped it, then Moses having to go deal with that, as the Lord said, go deal with your people, Moses. Moses having to go deal with that, and then we've seen... Uh, Since all of that happened, chapter 32, we've seen how all of that, what what was needed, what had to happen, the confrontation between Moses and Aaron, the confrontation with the people, the plague that came over, the sickness, the ones who said, which side are you going to be on? And 3,000 were killed in in judgment because of what happened with the idolatry. There is a recommitment. And then as we went through chapter 34, we went and saw how Moses said, you know, I'm not leaving unless you go, and I want your presence, and you are everything. So we talked about how, how as, as Moses, the Lord says, y'all go ahead and go to the promised land. I'm not going with you. And Moses, says, I'm not doing that. We talked about how the true gospel is the fact that we get the presence of God. His presence is what's most important. And so as we move through all of this, we'll see how that comes to light in the book of Exodus at the end. And, and I really don't know what's going to happen tonight other than we got we can cover a good bit of ground, and I'll tell you why. But I wanted to start with something. You see in chapter 35, at the end, Moses' face, we talked about this last week, Moses' face is glowing, having spent time with the Lord. He put the veil over his head. And remember, I was taught at a young age, and this, I, I don't know, if, I'm not trying to make fun or say anything about my my. Discipleship training teacher, y'all know what I'm saying. Y'all remember discipleship training six o'clock on a Sunday night, and church was at seven. Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? So I wasn't trying, but I was taught at a a young age that they put the veil on Moses's face because everyone was scared to look at him because his face was shining. Y'all, I'm saying, like they didn't want to see his face was shining. They were scared. I was taught that. Now that's what we showed last last week. That's not what was happening. Moses put the veil over his face so that they wouldn't see that the glory was fading away, right? They didn't want us. That's what Corinthians tells us was happening. Moses was veiling his face because they didn't want to see the glory. He didn't want to show them the glory was fading. He would go in, speak to the Lord. His face would glow. He would come out. He would tell them what the Lord said. He put the veil over because he didn't want to see the glory fading. And so Moses is doing this. To, to, to demonstrate God's presence with the people and to, to let them know that he is with them. He doesn't want that to fade. What you have in chapter 35, then, after God is speaking again to Moses, God says he will go with Moses. God renews the covenant with the people in chapter 34. And then in chapter 35, he assembled the congregation of the people of Israel together and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded to you. Six days shall be done, work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work own it shall be put to death you shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the sabbath day he gives him the idea that even they are going to rest in the lord this is an act of worship right this is an act of worship for them. so worship comes after what god has done after what he's promised even his grace being shown to the people after their sin they worship that's the true response Now, I want to discuss real quick, if I can, a biblical principle that's quite important for us. And I think this is a good place for us to mention it because it kind of ties in with this passage. We, We say things around now like, you are what you eat. Has anybody ever heard that? You are what you eat kind of deal? Well, the Bible has a similar principle, but it's different. You are what you worship. The Bible has this principle that's clearly laid out. In fact, it says it in several places. Look, me, look, me. I, I can pick them out, but let's try to pick them out in a good spot. Let's go to the book of Romans real quick. What you worship is what you will become, is what the Scripture teaches us. You are what you worship, and it is pointing you toward what you will be finally. Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, greatest chapter in the Bible. I mean, right there beside all the other chapters in the Bible. But Romans chapter 8, incredible. If somebody was saying, Josh, you got one last sermon to preach, I probably would go to Romans chapter 8. Just incredible passage. And he comes and he has this great verse that we all know: Romans 8:28. We know that for those who love God, all things are work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But I want us to go to verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son, His Son. Y'all see what he's saying. Those you called are going to follow Him. They are going to be formed into the image of the Son. What God is doing with His people is forming us into the image of the Son. That's why for those who love God, everything's for their good, because everything is. Is forming us into the image of the Son. Even what we would define as bad things can form us into the image of Christ, right? Sometimes, I mean, that's Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Why does he do this? To form us into the image of Christ. And so the reason why we can even say bad stuff in our life sometimes is for our good because it's making us more like Jesus. It's making us more like Christ. We worship him so we can be formed into his image. And so if you're building off of that idea of being formed into the image, you see that in Romans 12. We know Romans 1 and two, right? I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, what is your spiritual worship? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by a new of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. This is what it means to be formed into the image of, of, of Christ. is to give ourselves in worship, our life in worship, not being conformed to this world, but being conformed to Christ, doing the will of God, whatever is acceptable and perfect. good. Accept- That's what it means to be formed into the image of Christ. That's what worship ultimately looks like. And so let's look at the other side. Turn with me, for example, to Romans chapter 1. Whenever someone is not worshiping God, the opposite becomes true. So it says in Romans 1, you know, the wrath of God is revealed. Verse 18 goes on down to verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They didn't worship him as God. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And then verse 22 Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. If you go back to the uh, to to Exodus when they made a cow and worshipped it, and you look at this, what they this Paul is saying here is those who worship those things are fools. They they're foolish. In fact, not only are they foolish, their hearts are darkened, their thinking's futile, everything's screwed up with them. Y'all see how that works? What they think, what they feel, what they believe is all foolish, is all darkened. And so they are fools. So those who worship the Lord are conformed into the image of Christ, discern God's will, and do what is good, what is acceptable, and what is pleasing to the Lord. Those who do not worship him are darkened in heart, foolish in their minds, and they become fools themselves. Now, there's a continuation here. Not only do you have that idea, but look with me to to, uh, Psalm 115, for example. Psalm 115, there's actually several of these, these stretches. Psalm 115 is one of them, looking at verse 4. Really, you you go back, this is about the glory of God, worshiping him in his glory. Uh, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their gods? Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. And so you give you all the glory. But then listen to what he says when he starts talking about the gods of this world. Their idols, and if you put this in context of of Exodus, you're talking about a, a cow, right? They're bowing down. Those who worship them are foolish, foolish in heart and mind. Listen to what it says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Do you see? You create a statue, and it has this semblance of something, but it has zero power. You cry out to it, it can't hear you. You need, some, you need some wisdom from it, it can't even speak. You need to be rescued from something, its arms have no power. You need it to come to you and comfort you, their feet can't even walk. In this way, they give you nothing that you truly long for and look for. But look at what verse 8 says. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. They have no power. They can't do what they claim they can do. They don't even make a sound in their throat. And those who make them are just like them. Those who worship them are just like them. That's exactly what he's saying in Romans 1. If you're going to worship this world, then you are going to be reflecting the desires of this world, the longings of this world, the heart of this world. You're going to be reflecting all of that. You're going to become what you worship and what you put forward. But if you're worshiping God, then you're going to reflect his will, what is good, what is acceptable, what is pleasing, and be conformed into his image. Our worship and our affections right now are pointing us to where our longing is and where our heart is. And what Israel had to realize was that truth. Because notice the comparison of a golden cow, right, versus the one true and living God. Because here is this cow who has eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, feet that cannot walk, no power in it. I mean, it's a cow. It cannot even produce bacon. And so you have this cow and that's it. And then when God says to Moses, you come to me, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass my glory beside you. And when I pass my glory in front of you, you're just going to see the tail end of my glory. And when you hear and see the tail end of my glory, I'm going to pronounce, I'm going to preach to you who I am. I'm going to proclaim to you who I am. I'm going to tell you my name. And what he means by telling you his name is he is going to tell you who he is, what his character is, what his attributes are. So here is this cow that cannot see, hear, smell, talk, do anything for you. And if you worship that, you become a fool just like it. But listen to what God says. I am the Lord. As he passes in front of Moses there in chapter 34, verse 6, I am the Lord the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but will by no means clear the guilty. He says, look at me, if you're longing for for redemption, I'm the God of grace. If you're looking for comfort, I'm the God of love. If you're looking for hope, I'm the God that holds the future in my hands. That's who I am, he says. I'm the one that can fulfill everything you long for and satisfy you. So why in the world would we dare worship a cow over against the one true and living God? But for us, that makes sense, right? I'm not gonna bow down to a cow. None of us would do that. At the same time, why would we ever put anything in the place of God in our life for worship? Because when you do that, You're just as foolish as those who worship a cow, those who bow down to the calf. And what we learn here then is by God is showing his people that you are what you worship. A lesson they'll have to learn over and over again. And we who worship Christ are being conformed into his image. And I don't want to end it just there. Look with me to Colossians 3.10. We'll see a couple more verses here. Colossians 3:10 Verse 9 Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator You're being formed and renewed after the image of God or 2 Corinthians 3:18 I got y'all working tonight 2 Corinthians, this is where I'm coming back to. This is the passage, remember, where Paul is giving us the understanding of what happened with Moses and his veiled face, and his glowing face. And what he's saying is, we have something better than Moses. We've seen the glory of God, not the hind parts of it, not the tail end of it. We have seen the glory of God face to face in his son, Jesus Christ. And now we can look at that and walk around with unveiled face because the glory that we find in Christ does not fade away or go anywhere. We are the light of the world that will always shine when we shine in Jesus Christ, right? So the glory that we receive in Christ will not fade away and will not go any there. So he says, we all with unveiled face in verse 18, behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. So when we worship him and we see Christ Jesus, we are being transformed into his image. We become what we worship. And so the question then even comes greater. I say that to people all the time. You know, it it, kind of makes perfect sense. Why in the world, when you think about worship and what you give worth to in your life, why would you ever worship creation over the creator? That's Paul's point in Romans 1. That's the height of foolishness. Why would you make something and then bow down to it as if that something has power over you? You just fashioned it out of your own hands. Why would you ever worship something that's created rather than the creator that makes it? But not only that, the other point is, why would you worship something that cannot love you, that cannot care for you, that cannot help you, that cannot show mercy or have grace? Why would you worship something that has no power? Deaf, blind, dumb. Why would you worship anything like that when you have a God who hears us when we cry, who sees our situation and plight and knows it better than we even know ourselves, and who comes to us? In fact, he came to us himself through his son, Jesus Christ, when we could not. Dead in our trespasses and sins, he came to us And his arm, as Isaiah says, is mighty to save. He saves us with his own power and his own strength. Why would we worship a God who is not king and lord of all creation, right? That becomes the whole point here in Exodus. God has shown throughout this entire book a comparison with the gods of this world versus himself. He did it in Egypt the greatest nation at the time. And remember back, gosh, whenever we went through the first part of this book, like two or three years ago, remember how when he went through those plagues, 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 when he went through those, he dismantled the gods of Egypt. They believed that the Nile they should worship. He said, I'll turn that to blood right now. Watch this. It's useless to you. They put their trust in their, their crops. I'll end those as we speak. You trust your cattle and, and, and those beasts of the field to, for, your, for your wealth? They died like that. You think you can control nature? I'm going to have a swarm of gnats up in here that you'll never, ever see again. You think you can control? You, you bow up and then ultimately... The sun God, you think that's good? I'll turn it to blackness. The Lord showed himself, because he said, I'm going to make myself known. And he shows himself as compared to the gods of this world, superior, greater, more powerful, and at the same time, kind and gentle and more loving as he redeems his people. Because when he shows his greatness and his power, even over life and death with that 10th plague, When he showed that, he provided a way out for his own people. And they were redeemed out of it through the blood of the lamb. And he delivered them and he protected them and he's guided them. And even when they've complained, he's loved them and he's answered them and he's heard them. And he provides the water from the rock and the manna from heaven and the quail coming into the camp. He's provided everything over and over for them. He has not hidden who he is. He's told them on the mountain, this is who I am. This is what I expect. In every way, he has made himself known. In every step of this, when God makes himself known as to who he is and he makes himself known by the things that he does for them, and what he proclaims to them, right? And so when he makes himself known by who he is, he is showing there is no other gods like me. And the height of foolishness would be to not follow the one true and living God that saved you and redeemed you and bow down to something else. And that's what we see here at the end of this book. In chapter 35, we start to see what happens as they get ready to start building out what was... Given there. So in chapter 35, you have really uh, starting chapter 35 through the end of the book, the implementation or the building of the tabernacle and all of the pieces of furniture. If y'all remember correctly, chapter 25 through 31. Moses goes up and he speaks to God face to face, and God gives him clear direction. This is what you are to build. Here's how you are to build it. Here's what the priest is to wear. Here's how you build the ark. Here's how you build the table. Y'all remember all that? They give all that. What you have now in chapter 35 through the end of the chapter is the people of God actually doing what God said to do. They're building it. So I mean, it's just really the building out of it. There's two things I do want to notice. Because building out the tabernacle, we may say, well, that doesn't pertain to us, right? Because they're building out the tabernacle. We don't build out the tabernacle. We got you know, Jesus is the tabernacle. He's with, he's with us and he's in us and all this other stuff. We got all that. But what they're really doing, what they're really doing here is they are making this tabernacle to demonstrate or to make the glory of God known. They're building a tabernacle so God can dwell with him and his glory be known. My friends, that's exactly what we've been called to do as his people. Make the glory of God known. Proclaim the glory of God. Proclaim his majesty. So in some sense, there are some lessons we can learn. What do they do? They call for a couple things here in building it out. They call for resources. We need resources. Bring us wood. Bring us the things we need to build this stuff. So they call the people for resources. They call for craftsmen. Not only do we need resources, we need people to build this thing. We need people to lead out. And so you have the craftsmen that are, that are leading out. And they got some, some fun names here. Bezalel and Oholiab. I don't know if you, if I was going, I don't know how you pronounce it, but Oholiab sounds great. Oh, Holyab. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Bezalel's a little hard. I don't know about Bezalel, but Oh, Holyab. Y'all know uh, Shaddix was here this past Sunday, and he was talking about Onesiphorus, and he's never met anybody named Onesiphorus. I walked up to him and said, Dr. Shaddix, I need to tell you this, but my youngest son's named (laughs) Onisaphorus." He's like, are you kidding me? Are you serious right now? I've never met anybody. I was like, nah, I'm just kidding. That's true, that's how I handled it. Um, You have these two master craftsmen comes up. If we're going to demonstrate or build the glory of God, then of course we need resources to do that and we need people to lead out with it, right? If we're going to build and show the glory of God, we need people to lead and to step up. I'm excited about what we have going on here in Life Church for interns, to Blake as residents. We have to be a place that call out the craftsmen to build the building that shows the glory of God, his church. So we need these things. And what I like about this is when the call happens, the people respond. Because generosity, generosity marks the people of God. Y'all hear me when I say, you cannot hear me when I say this and you can get mad at me later. I am not some televangelist. I ain't doing no phone-a-thon. I ain't asking nobody for money and you ain't got to call me and give me a pledge right now, maybe later. But I ain't doing any of that. What I'm telling you is this. You cannot tell me you are a healthy, faithful follower of Jesus and be stingy. It's impossible. When you realize, as a believer, that God has given you every single thing you own. In fact, Paul says, he does it rhetorically. What do you have that has not been given to you, he asks. And his point in that is nothing. You can start with what you got on your body now with your clothes. You can go all the way down. But if you say you earned this, what did you earn it with? It was with the gifts and talents that God gave you himself, right? It's with the very breath that he puts inside your body. Your heart does not beat unless God gives it permission. And so ultimately, that's what we have to realize here. Generosity begins with an understanding that we serve a God we cannot outgive, And he has blessed us. So a believer cannot be stingy. If you are stingy as a believer, you have totally misunderstood what Christianity is, and there is something fundamentally wrong with where your heart's at. All right? Y'all get down. I'm not asking y'all for money right now, but you can give. So... I will tell you what happens here. Listen to what he says. So Moses makes this call. We need you to give, right? We need you guys to give. So chapter 36, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. Moses says we need stuff to build it with. They keep bringing it. We need it. They keep bringing it. We need it. They keep bringing it. And then look at what happens a little bit later in chapter 36 there in verse 6. So Moses gave command and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp. This is incredible. I've never heard of this in my life. Moses makes this command and claims throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. They were restrained from bringing it. God bless, I long for the day. I gotta tell y'all to stop giving. Man, wouldn't that be crazy? We got enough. You know what I'm saying? Don't give anymore. What I'm telling you is no matter how much they gave, they could not outgive God. And this, my friends, along with the worship they give God, which honors Him and glorifies Him this becomes the absolutely proper response to the grace God showed them after they turned to an idol. They deserved death at that point, but instead God showed them grace and he came to them and he said, I will go with you. I will take you there. He showed them grace and the only proper response to the grace of God is to worship him and live our life generously before him. Live our life generously before him. Not only that, you see the obedience. I am not. You guys feel free tonight to read chapter 35 and 36 and 37 how they make all these things and it tells them how they make it. I want I'm not doing that right now. What I want to get to you is the point of this. When you get to chapter 39, you start to have a phrase that is said over and over again. You can see it there starting in verse In verse 1, as the Lord had commanded Moses, going down to verse 5, as the Lord had commanded Moses, going down to verse 7, as the Lord had commanded Moses, over to verse 21, as the Lord had commanded Moses, verse 26, verse uh, 29, verse 31, verse 32. Do y'all see what I'm saying? Over and over and over again, what becomes the point of this passage is that God had told them what to do, and they did it. They did it. The other, and you can see it, it keeps going in chapter 40. Chapter It finishes there, chapter 39, verse 42, verse 43, chapter 40, verse 16. You got verse 19. You got verse 21. You got verse 23. You got verse 25. You got verse 27. You got verse 29. You got verse 32. Y'all see? Over and over again, this phrase continues. The point here that comes is not just that they built this, but they did exactly what God said to do. The point that comes out of this is that the people of God, the people of God have total obedience to him, the proper response to the grace of God after his forgiveness with this worship of the calf is for them to worship him, not a golden cow. To worship him, honor him, for he is good and he's faithful. And then they give and live generously before him. And then they are in total obedience to him. This is the proper response to God's grace. What that means is, The beginning of the book of Exodus begins with this people, these people, in bondage, in slavery, under the sentence of death, remember, as God was, I mean, as uh, Pharaoh was ruling over them. But even when they're bondage and in slavery and under the sentence of death, God delivers them through the blood of the lamb. And they're called out. And this calling out then, as they're called out, God is the one calling them out, delivering them, calling them out. And he is from that point on with them. The great glory of the book of Exodus is that God not only redeems his people, but he is with his people. He leads them, he provides for them, he protects them all along the journey of the way. The Lord is with them, leading, guiding, and protecting them in every way all to the time when he promises he will get them safely to the land. The exodus, as we know it, becomes a picture for us. Because remember, all of scripture is pointing us to Christ Jesus, right? And the exodus becomes an absolute picture for us of what has happened in each and every one of our lives, spiritually. Spiritually. Jesus makes this point in in John chapter eight. We were once enslaved. We were once under the sentence of death in our sin. We were once in bondage and had no way to free ourselves. But the Lord God delivered us through the blood of the lamb, right? He delivered us through the blood of the lamb and when he delivered us, he passed us through the water. Baptism, because we're good Baptists. Y'all see how that works? He he passed us through the water and he is now with us as we are on this journey ourselves, strangers and pilgrims in this land, as Peter says. As we're on this journey ourselves, he is now with us, providing for us, protecting us, caring for us in every way and he has made us a promise just as sure as Jesus, the lamb was slain for us and rose again, just as sure as he came for us, that time he's coming for us again, and he is going to get to us safely home. That's exactly what we see here in Exodus. It becomes a picture of our own spiritual journey, having been redeemed by Christ. He will get us safely home. He will be with us and take us safely home. That becomes the whole story of Exodus. And it becomes the picture for us of how God has redeemed us and saved us with us, providing for us, protecting us and will bring us to the promised land where we ultimately finally will have rest. The purpose of that worship is to be conformed into the image of God and to point us to our future glory because just as Christ Jesus will reign forever in eternity in heaven, so we will reign with him when we worship him as it points us into our own future glory. The end of chapter 40, they build a tabernacle. The end of chapter 40 seems maybe redundant to us, but it really is the climax of the book. The last few verses are the climax of the book, verse 34 through 38. Because up until this point, if we didn't know, the question still is, will God's glory be with his people? You know, he said it, he talked about it, he talk, but, but will it happen? Will they do something dumb again? Will something else take place? And so they build the tabernacle and could you imagine the people? They're sitting there, they've done what they can, they've given, they've given, they've given. Those, what they've given has been taken and the craftsmen had made it and fashioned it just like Moses told them to. As the Lord told Moses, they did it just as Moses told them to. And so they're doing all this and they're doing it with the hope, the hope that God will fill the tabernacle. Hopefully they do it right. They don't want to get anything wrong. They want to do it just as God said, total obedience. They want to do it just right. They build and they construct the tabernacle. And now all they can do is wait, right? Wait. Will God do this? Will God fill it? And so when you get to the end of chapter 40, there they are, having built it, having finished the work, as it says in verse 33. They finished the work. Moses finished the work. Then For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Ultimately, they did what God called them to do they turned away from Him, they bowed down to a calf, they had to face the judgment for worshiping something that was dead. They faced it, God showed them grace. God showed them grace. And when he showed them grace, how did they respond? They responded by worshiping him, not an idol, not anything else, him. And when they worshiped him, it was seen in the generosity that they would give because they recognized he had given them everything. And it was seen in in the heart of service that they offered in building these things. It was seen in their obedience to do what God was doing. This is the proper response to God's grace in our life. Worship him, serve him, live generously before him. That's the proper response. And that's what we see here in Exodus. And ultimately, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Here's what we can say today. God has not called us to build a building, to erect some furniture, right? And say, please, Lord, come fill it. God has said something quite different to us. He said, if you call on the name of the Lord, I will save you. I will fill you. And so those who are believers, those who are believers in Christ, the moment our life is given over to him, the spirit of God dwells in us. We don't have to wait on that. We ain't got to deal. We ain't got God's grace is shown to us even more so through all we have to do is believe and trust and call on his name. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and we trust and believe in him and he fills us. He fills us with his glory so that we shine the light of Christ Jesus and his name throughout all of this earth. We show the glory of God to others as they look to us. And what's the proper response to that kind of grace? A life of obedience. You understand what I'm saying. It's not the obedience that gets the glory. The glory comes in through the belief and then the obedience becomes a response to the glory. Just as we saw in Exodus 20, I'm the God who brought you out of slavery and bondage of Egypt. Now here is how you live before me. You shall have no other gods the response for us comes to the grace of God that he shows in our life. And we respond by living obediently before him, giving generously of all that he has given to us, serving him with the gifts and talents he has blessed us with, and ultimately, completely worshiping him, knowing that when we worship him, do what is good and pleasing in his sight and we are formed into the image of Christ Jesus. When we're formed into the image of Christ, our end is Christ's end, eternity with him in glory. That becomes a proper response to the grace God has shown us. That's what the book of Exodus is showing us and teaching us as we learn, as God said, I'm gonna show you who I am. When we get to the end of this book, we know who he is, faithful, true, loving and kind, but jealous that we follow him and him alone. And so may that be our desire as we look to Christ who is faithful and true and loving and kind and who has redeemed us out of slavery and sin and given us life everlasting. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. You are good. And so God, may we worship you conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. All for your glory and all for your name we pray. Amen.